Today we are going to cover Revelation 1, 9 through 20. This is our second study in this text. We have the vision of Jesus and the things that are around the vision. Last week we covered the vision and what they represented. This week we want to cover the things that are around the vision. You can break this text up into three, four verse parts. The first part is the setting for the vision. So John talks about what he was doing when all of a sudden he turned around and had this incredible vision of Jesus. Then the next four verses are his vision of Jesus. We will cover that tonight, but it will be quick because we covered it in detail last week, so it'll be more of a reminder. And then we get the instructions that are given to John from the vision. So we're going to be looking at the setting for the vision and the instruction for the vision. That'll be the bulk of our Bible study tonight. And there's some great stuff that's here. So we pick it up in Revelation 1, verse 9, where he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and right away, you can see my dilemma in trying to cover the, the whole text around the vision and the vision itself. Let's talk about the author first of all, I, John. Now, even though there is some controversy and there are people who believe this wasn't the apostle, scholarship and history has on the side of John the apostle. This is the same author of the book of John who called himself the one whom Jesus loved. It's the same author of the books of first, second and third John where he referred to himself as the elder. At this point, he's just older and he's going around visiting churches and he's just like the elder and everybody knows who he's talking about. And here he refers to himself as John. Tortillian, who was an early church father, wrote in the 100. So the first century is zero to 100 or to 99. The second century is 100 to 200. So he was around in the second century. And I don't, that, in scholarship, that's incredibly early. When someone that early gives a testimony, we have a tendency to give it more weight. Tertullian said that John the Apostle wrote this book, that John was arrested by Domitian, the emperor. Domitian had built a temple to himself in Ephesus. Uh, John was a pastor in Ephesus. Think about the church in Ephesus. You know, every once in a while, you meet people that come from a church where they've had famous pastors. And they'll be like, well, my pastor is Chuck Smith or my pastor is, you know, John MacArthur. Well, the church at Ephesus had, Ephesus had Timothy, Paul and the Apostle John, who had pastored the church at Ephesus. And while he was there, he ran into a problem with Diomission, who wanted worship. Diomission was one of the first emperors that really pushed his own worship. They believed the emperors were going to become gods. Diomission presented himself as God and demanded that everyone worship him. Well, this obviously became a problem for Christians, especially in Ephesus. And this caused John to go before Diomission. And Tertullian also says that he was boiled in oil, that he was tortured, uh, that he survived without any marks, which would have been miraculous. Who knows whether or not he just survived it and that he exiled him to the island of Patmos. Now, Patmos is a Greek island and it's a small island. And it, um, it did have a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a barren island in those days. There are a lot of Greek islands and there were islands they used to exile criminals to. 
that were just barren islands. You got off the island and you just fended for yourself. That was not the island of Patmos during the Roman times. During the time that John was there, there was a harbor. There was a small community by the harbor that was a Roman community. There was even a gymnasium in that Roman community. It didn't mean that John, would, as, as a prisoner on the island, would have used the gymnasium, but it was there for that small Roman community that was on that island. So he was more like a, uh, I, I would liken Patmos to more of a white-collar crime prison rather than, you know, a, a state prison that you would go to. Uh, but that doesn't mean, as an older man, that it wasn't difficult and it wasn't hard, and it was there on the island that he received this vision. So he, write, he starts off in verse 9 by saying, both your brother and companion. He's, he knows he's writing these letters now to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. There's a possibility that John has been into all of them. All of them are in a circuit, all seven of the churches. At some point, we'll show you a map that shows in Turkey today and where these different churches are. And there was a road that connected all of them. They were able to travel this entire circuit. It's possible as a, the older statesman, statesman, the only one of the apostles that were still alive, that Paul would have visited all seven of these churches. Excuse me, John would have visited all seven of these churches. But John was a pastor at Ephesus, as I said earlier, but he lets them know he's their brother and companion. He wants them to know this is a personal letter from someone who loves you and knows you. When you get a letter from somebody who's with you that you know loves you and cares about you, that's far more important than getting a letter from someone whom you barely know. He wants them to know I am one of you and I am writing this letter as one of you, which would give this letter even more importance in the seven churches that he would be writing it to. Your companion in, uh, your brother and companion. And then he gives three things in tribulation, in the kingdom, and in patience, the patience of Jesus Christ. So first of all, tribulation. Now, we're going to get the great tribulation in this book. When he says, I'm your companion in tribulation, he's not talking about that. The tribulation period is the wrath of God, the final judgment. It's as if all God's wrath has been stored up and will be poured out on that last generation. Kind of like he poured out all of the judgment for all of the prophets that had been killed on the generation that had killed him. Remember he said that? And so there's a couple of things the Bible says about tribulation in John 16, 33. Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have, come over the, uh, I have overcome the world. So in the, he wants us to have peace even though we're living in a world where we are going to have tribulation. And I'll remind you that that from Jesus is a promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. All of us will face difficulties and hardships in the world. Just because we have a relationship with Christ doesn't take us out of the world, doesn't give us new bodies, doesn't, let, doesn't mean we don't have the troubles and difficulties. It certainly means that God uses the things we go through for, his, for our good. It, it also means that God will meet our needs and answer our prayers and, and deliver us from certain things, but certainly not from everything. In Matthew 24, 9 through 13, as Jesus talked about the last days, he said that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, but the end isn't yet. 
And before the end, he says, they will, this is Matthew 24, 9 through 13, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. He wants them to know as he's talking to them right before he's arrested, they're going to arrest you. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. That's exactly what John has experienced. He's been arrested and he is in tribulation, exiled to the island of Patmos. And he says, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. People hate us because we are Christians. I used to say we don't see much of that, but we see more of it now. People do hate us without knowing us just because we're Christians. They determine what they think we believe before they know whether or not we believe anything. And that hatred is growing. It says that, um, and then many will be offended, will betray one another and hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of the lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So he says, I'm a brother with you in tribulation. We're getting this letter from John the Apostle who has faced tribulation, writing to us, who in this time frame will have tribulation, although we will be delivered from the great tribulation that is to come. The second thing he says is the kingdom. I'm a brother and a companion with you in tribulation and in the kingdom. So we are a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among us right now. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. What you're going to eat, drink, and wear, all of your needs. So all of us here as Christians are supposed to seek the kingdom of God daily. We're to be about God's business. Paul said in Galatians, it's no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In Romans 14, 17, it says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's not physical, but righteousness and peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. When you come to Christ and you are born again, there's righteousness, there's peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit was within you as you are part of that kingdom. In Luke 17, 20 and 21, Jesus said, we're still talking about the kingdom. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God, well, when the kingdom of God would come? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come by observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. At the moment that you become a born again child of God, the moment that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the seal that you are a genuine Christian, you are now part of the kingdom of God. Really, we change our citizenship. We're no longer citizens here. We become sojourners here. And we are just passing through, but we are part of the kingdom of God. The last thing that he says is the patience of Jesus Christ. That he is a brother and a companion along with us or the seven churches in the patience of Jesus Christ. And that is that we need to live patiently while we wait for him to return. Knowing that we do not know the day when he is going to return. I watched the video and I probably shouldn't watch these videos. I told my wife when we were watching them I'm, I'm, and she wanted to watch it, but I'm going to talk about this. This is going to happen. I'm going to talk about it. But I watched a whole video that Jesus is coming back this year, 2022, September 27th through the 29th, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And he talked about the four blood triad moons that were 
from the end of the tribulation period would have been 12 years. From the beginning of it would have been five years. So he went to Revelation 12, 5 because of that. That was his thinking. He's got these couple of dates. He goes to Revelation 12, 5 and he draws something from that that points to the day when Jesus is going to return. And I'm going, can I change it? Can I change this? Can I change this? Because it's driving me crazy. He said things like the moon represents the Messiah. Well, that's great. Just tell us where. Just tell us why. If you're going to say something like that, I could say anything. I could say the moon represents marriage. But if I don't have any scriptures to back it up, it doesn't mean anything. You want to back everything up with scriptures. So we want to live in the patience of the return of Jesus because we don't know when he's coming back. In Jude 1, there's only one chapter. So in Jude, verses 20 through 21, it says, but you building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That is that we are patiently waiting. James tells us like a farmer who plants his seeds and he patiently waits until the harvest. Hebrews 10, 35 through 37 talks about this patience as well. It says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. It's taking longer than we thought. We've got to settle in. This isn't a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon. We're living the rest of our lives for Jesus. And this is what John's talking about when he's talking about the patience of Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance. We have a need. We have need of endurance. A lot of people run the race for a while and then they fade off. And even though they may still run the race, they're not in it to win it. And then it says that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. It will happen. But we are living in that patience. The Bible says in Galatians, don't grow weary in doing good for in due season, you will reap if you do not faint. Stick it out. You may say, well, I didn't expect it to be this long. That's okay. Keep living. It may be another hundred years. You and I may all go and be with the Lord. It may be, it's not going to be September 27th through the 29th because Jesus said, I'm coming at a time you don't expect it. There's people expecting it. So those days can be checked off. I don't know when it's happening, but I know when it's not happening. So he goes on to say then after saying these three things that he is a part of, he says was on the island called Patmos. We've already covered that for the word of God. It was for his preaching of the word of God that was in conflict with the, probably the new temple in Ephesus that was built for Diomitian worship and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, I'm, I'm imprisoned on this island for that purpose. Then he says, and this is controversial, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It's controversial for a couple of reasons. Number one, he references the Lord's day, which is Sunday. It's making a reference to. Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus appeared that evening to his 12 disciples, as to his 10 disciples, because Judas was gone and Thomas was not there. And he appeared to them while they gathered together. The next Sunday, he appeared to them again. And that established the church meeting together on the Lord's day or meeting together the first day of the week on Sunday rather than Saturday. When he says, I was in the spirit, what does that mean? Does it mean that while I was praying, or doing the dishes that the spirit suddenly came upon me and I was in the spirit and I saw a vision. Does it mean that John deliberately began to pray? Maybe pray in tongues. 
seeking God, searching out, hearing what he would say, being in the spirit deliberately, and then saw the vision as he was in the spirit. I don't know what the answer to that exactly is, but I know Jesus said, when you pray, go into your prayer closet and shut the door and pray where no one sees you or hears you. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. So it's good for us to seek God, to pray. If you have the gift of tongues, to pray in tongues, to seek God. I don't think that praying in tongues makes you suddenly pray in the spirit. And that's where this is controversial. Remember that 1 Corinthians 14 says tongues are self-edification. When I pray in tongues, it's my spirit speaking to God and I am edified. And in that same letter, he said, don't, when you gather together, don't be self-edified, but edify one another. He said, I would rather speak five words in my understanding than 10,000 words in tongues when we gather together because we want to be edified. The body needs to be edified. So I think it's good for us to seek to be in the spirit, to be aware of the spirit, to make things right with God, to be seeking him. I think that's a good thing to do. I don't think it's a bad thing. And there's these two polarized sides on, on this passage and exactly what it means. And I think seeking God and wanting to walk in the spirit and be in touch with the spirit, being, being filled with the spirit is a good thing to do, no matter what John meant when he, when he wrote this. All right. So he says, while I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. So again, we hear the voice of Christ being loud. His voice is loud enough for it to be heard. I don't think there's anything that can quiet his voice down. Here he says the same thing that we heard earlier. I am the alpha and the omega. That would be like the A to Z. He's the first and the last. John tells us that everything that was created was created by Jesus and there's nothing that was created that was not created. He was the beginning of it all. He was, the, the Godhead was involved in creation, but Jesus was the part of the Godhead that things were created through. This is told us again in Colossians chapter one, when it says he is the express image of the invisible God and everything that was created was created by him. So we're told it not in one place, but several places in the New Testament. And then he says, I'm the first and the last, same principle. He's the first, he's before everything. What you see, write in a book. So he's gonna see these visions and he's supposed to write them in the book. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. There are more than seven churches that are in Asia. Seven is a, is a particular number we find over and over again in the book of Revelation, that means completeness. And the seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, we could go on and when you start looking, it's the number of God, number of perfection, not necessarily perfection, like it's perfect, whatever has seven is perfect, but it's the idea of being complete. So he's writing this to the complete churches that are in Asia and he gives the list of them now. To Ephesus, and this is the loveless church. This is the church that had a deep love for God in the beginning, but here near the end of the first century is now loveless. This is one of the reasons, this is internal evidence 
that we believe the book of Revelation was written around 95 when Tertullian wrote that Paul was on the island of Patmos. Some people want to put it before 64 because they want the, the destruction of Jerusalem to be the fulfillment of the book of Revelation. The internal evidence of the book is that Ephesus wasn't loveless in 64 or 70. It wasn't until 95 that it had gotten to the place where we're going to see it had tried and tested all these people and became, I don't know if proud is the right word, but became really stuck on being right so that they were no longer in love with God, with Jesus. And so they're the loveless church. And then we have Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. In the second century, the persecution came upon the church as well. Smyrna received great persecution. There's Pergamos, which is the compromising church. Thyatira is the corrupt church. Sardis is the dead church that God wants to wake up and bring to life. To Philadelphia, which is the faithful church. And to Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church. Now, these are several, seven literal churches that have these distinctions that he's going to write to. But it also speaks of Christians today, that these are different traps that we can fall into. We may find ourselves loveless. We may find ourselves corrupt. We might find ourselves dead and strengthen what remains, he says, so that what's left alive doesn't die. You're barely hanging on. We might find ourselves lukewarm. We could also evaluate churches by these things. These are letters to churches. So we could evaluate churches. And the best thing to do is not to evaluate other churches. Not for us to go, I, I know who the persecuted church, I know who the dead church is, I know who the lukewarm church is. The best thing for us to do with this is to evaluate ourselves, to evaluate our church. Is our church lukewarm? Is our church compromising? Is our church loveless? Is our church faithful? We want to evaluate it because, well, Jesus said, if you judge yourself, then you won't be judged. If we can honestly judge where we are in these letters personally and as a church, then it's going to be far better for us because that's why God has given us chapters two and three in the book of Revelation. So we can evaluate these things. Also, there were churches throughout church ages throughout history that fit these different definitions. And surprisingly, they go in order. So you find the loveless church in the end of the first century. You find the persecuted church in the second century. You find the, um, what's the next one? The um, compromising church following that, the corrupt church following that, and so on. I don't know. There's no, there's no evidence that that's what God intended. So we will not spend a lot of time on that. But we will point out what was going on in the church ages if you use them as a stencil, which would mean that you would have the faithful church today and the lukewarm church today, both around at the same time. All right. So then he says in verse 12, then turning to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll get to the lampstands. They are interpreted for us. There's no guessing. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like the son of man one like a human. He also would fulfill Daniel chapter seven, the son of man coming on the clouds of glory, given a kingdom and a power forever. A human in Daniel, this is in, in the Old Testament, a human was going to come on the clouds of glory and receive a kingdom forever. 
So he sees one like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a gold band. This is the garment of the high priest. We're told in Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest. And because the Hebrews are going back to Judaism, the temple was still around. They were going back to the temple. He says, why do you want a human high priest when you have one that will never die? Jesus, of course, is from the tribe of Judah. So his priesthood has to come through Melchizedek, that kind of strange encounter that Abraham has with the, the king and priest, which you don't have in Judaism. You could never have a king be a priest, but we are kings and priests. Jesus is a king and priest and Melchizedek was a king and priest as well. So we, he sees a high priest. His hair and head were white like wool, as white as snow, which would speak of knowledge. The older you get, the more knowledge you have. I realize you younger people here don't think that's the case. And if you're in your, you know, you're like, I don't know, in your teens, you're like, these people have no clue. They don't know what they're talking about. Trust me, in the 60s, there was a saying, don't trust anybody over 30. You know, you thought anybody over 30 doesn't know what's going on. But the more gray hair you have, the more knowledge you have. And the more, and that doesn't, if you color it, doesn't, doesn't matter, right? And um, so this speaks of his knowledge and his wisdom, that God is all wisdom and he is all knowledge. His eyes like a flame of fire. He sees everywhere. He's omnipresent. He sees everything that happens and his eyes are like fire, which would speak of judgment. He is going to judge what he sees. He sees it all. He will judge what he sees. His feet are like fine brass. In the Bible, the only place that we find brass is in the altar that was built. So on Jesus's feet, everywhere he goes, he's bringing atonement with him. There was atonement on the altar. Animals were sacrificed and Jesus died on the cross for us. And so on the altar of the cross and his feet, every, like we in our armor, everywhere we go, we have our feet prepared with the gospel of Christ. So we are his representatives everywhere we go. Everywhere Jesus goes, he has his atonement with him. And all you need to do is ask him. And that's why when you say, Lord, come into my life, he comes into your life. The voice like the sound of many waters, kind of like the idea of a trumpet, it's going to be heard. God's word is going to be heard. It may be rare at certain times, the Bible says, but God's word will be heard. And in his right hand were the seven stars. Those will be, for, uh, to, we'll told who those are in a few moments as well. Excuse me. Out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword, which speaks of the word of God, in our armor, like our feet are prepared with the gospel, we have the sword of the spirit. This is God's word. It's what we live by. It's the way that we, we attack the enemy. It's the way that we march on the gates of hell. It's the way that we live the blessed life by hearing his word and doing it. Jesus himself said, my the heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. When Jesus was tempted, he responded with the word of God at every temptation, the exact opposite of what Eve did. When Eve was tempted, she twisted God's word. She changed God's word. She denied God's word and she fell into temptation. When we are true to God's word, we are able to stand against temptation. This is the sword of the spirit for us. And it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. And we are blessed when we hear his words and do them. And then his countenance was like the sun shining in all of its strength. And that's his glory. When, when, he, when he came the first time, he laid his glory aside, became a little lower than the angels. But when we see him the next time, 
we will see him in all of his glory. So what did John see when he turned around? He saw a human who would be now like us. We're going to be like him forever. He saw a human who was a high priest, who was wise and knowledgeable, who could see everywhere and brought judgment, who had atonement with him, whose voice could be heard. If you want to hear God's voice, you can. Whose word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the vision of Jesus that he saw. If we could somehow paint that picture, that'd be a powerful picture. When they paint this picture with the fiery eyes and the sword coming out of his mouth and the, the, the white hair and the glory shining everywhere, it's like you look at that picture and go, ah, that's frightening. These all represent these things. And so then it says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, this is the answer to the very famous worship song, I can only imagine what I will do when I see you. And I like that song, all right? But I don't think we understand our own sinfulness. And I don't think we understand God's glory and God's righteousness. And when we see him as he is, we will be like Isaiah. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I said, woe am I, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Seeing God made him aware of his own shortcomings. And an angel came and took a coal from the altar that is in heaven and touched his lips. And now his words were clean and he was able to prophesy for God. That's the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was saying, I don't have what it takes to be able to prophesy for him. And the answer is none of us have what it takes. And when we see God, we will be very aware of our sin and that perhaps we don't understand how bad sin is today. I'm not going to say perhaps. I, I think we don't understand how bad sin is. We don't understand how bad our own sin is. When the disciples, James, John and Peter were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was glorified in front of them, they fell down. Peter started jabbering, but Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. These guys, or John, falls down before the Lord as if dead, just can't move in the presence of who he sees here. Then it says, but he laid his right hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid. Because of the atoning work of Christ, we do not need to be afraid. Why? Because I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's a reference to the atoning work. You don't have to be afraid because I was he who lives, died, and am alive forevermore. Now, that triad, those three statements, you find this throughout the book of Revelation. It's something else that we're going to look for. I was, I am, and I will be was one of those triads. I was alive, I died, I'm alive forevermore is another one of those triads. And we find these throughout the book of Revelation. We're going to get another one here in just a moment. So he is not to be afraid because Jesus died for him. That's the only reason why we would not be afraid of God. Had he not died for us, then we would see him and be terrified because he is the ultimate judge and 
we would be not only awestruck, because the Bible says that God's awesome. In fact, there's a verse that says God's totally awesome. Remember the, the, the valley girl craze? Like this burger is totally awesome. Well, the Bible said that God is totally awesome. Not just that we're going to be awestruck with him, but we would be completely fearful in his righteousness and position as a judge, our own filthiness and needing to be cleansed that we do not need to be afraid because he died for us and he's alive forevermore. Then he says, amen. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Excuse me, Hades and death. Now, to Peter, he had said, on this rock, I'll build my church and I give you the keys to heaven. You and I, as the church, have the keys to heaven. And we can let people in because we know what it takes. People need to be born again. They need to receive Christ. They can ask for forgiveness. And when they do, God's faithful to forgive them. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you which means that we're going to see people come to Christ because we have those keys. But now there's two more keys we find out. There's the keys to Hades. This is the Greek word for the Greek God of the underworld, Hades, which also spoke of the place he ruled, which was the unseen underworld, Hades. So when Jesus says, I have the keys to Hades, he's not talking about the false mythological God, Hades. He's talking about the place that is unseen. And Hades literally means unseen. And when you die and you don't know Christ, you go to this unseen place. When Jesus talked in, John, in Luke 16, he said that there was a rich man and a poor man who died. One of them was being comforted by Abraham. The other one was in Hades in torment. He was in the unseen world and he was in torment. And ended up saying, go and, go and talk to my brethren to, so they don't come to this place. And Jesus said, they have the law and the prophets and they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead, which is pretty crazy. Even though someone sees the evidence, there are people who still will not believe because they are determined to not believe no matter what. Then he has the keys to death. He not only has the keys to Hades, and one day Hades... The, uh, the unseen world of the dead will be thrown into hell and hell is a place that was created for Satan and his angels. So there's no one in hell today. There are people in the unseen world, Hades, but not in hell, the lake of fire, which we would, we would say would be the lake of fire. There are several different words used for hell. And even though I'm tempted to go on about it now, I won't. Um, so he has the keys to Hades and to death. Now, Jesus can, can fix your problem of death. The problem of death for mankind is it's a very high rate. One out of one person dies. 100% of people die. And he has the keys to death. In John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Even though we die in the flesh, we will live in the spirit and the presence of God. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So once you live and you believe in Christ, he has the keys to death and you will never die. And then he says to her, do you believe this? In 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, in the resurrection passage that has a part of that being the rapture, when people are resurrected and the people who are alive will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, 
The very end of that passage says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So death will be defeated at the resurrection of the saints. So he has the keys to death and Hades. Then he gives them instruction. Write the things which you have seen. This is another, this is another triad. Write the things you've seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place after this. Past, present, future. Write what was, what is, and, and what will be. But for him, this is the outline for the book of Revelation. And, and an outline, we, we would like outlines to be a third of the book, a third of the book, a third of the book, but it's not. So he says to him, write the things which are. That would be chapter one, the things he's going through right then. They need to know that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the vision of, of Christ in this, who is bringing these things to pass. And then the things which, which are, which is the church age, he is, John is in the church age. He was a pastor to one of the churches he's going to write to. And so we are in the church age still. And we're going to read chapters two and three, which are the things that are. And then in chapter four, we get two chapters of heavenly visions before we get the chapters that go, deal with the tribulation period here on the earth. The things that happen during the tribulation period here on the earth. Those are the things to come. Write the things that are, chapter one, uh, excuse me, write the things that you see, chapter one, the things that are, chapters two and three, the things that will be, four, five, six, and, and, and so on. And chapter four opens up with a door up in heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. And I'll share with you when we get there why I think that that is the place where the rapture of the church happens in the book of Revelation. The very next scene after that is every tongue, tribe, nation, language, people praising and worshiping God before the throne. That's the very next scene. So he says, the mysteries, so after giving him the instructions for this letter he's going to write, the mysteries of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's two different thoughts here. The word angel is messenger. And so some believe that every church has an angel that our church has an angel, that other churches have angels, that churches in cities have angels that are over them, that there's a structure, an angelic structure that's over them. Others believe the messenger here is the pastor that is bringing the messages. There he's the messenger of God to the church. In that case, you, you could refer to me as angel, if that's the case. Could be my new name. Um, I don't think that's what it is. I think he's talking about angels. That there are angels that watch over us. In Hebrews 13, 2, it says, do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So entertain strangers because they might be angels. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 says, but to which of the angels did he say, sit here at my right hand till your enemies are your footstool. He's comparing Jesus to angels. He's saying Jesus is greater to the angels because he never said that to the angels. But then he says this, and they, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation? You and I are humans. 
We are lower than the angels. And just like God switched around the firstborn with the secondborn throughout the Old Testament, God has taken the angels who are the firstborn and they are now serving us, which is nothing for us to be proud about, but instead for us to marvel at. We're like Jacob. We're the secondborn and the angels are ministers to us. There are ways you are ministered to by angels. Matthew 18, 10, Jesus said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Talking about children and talking about new believers. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. These angels are able to see God, but there is guardian angels for children. An amazing thought. So angels minister to us. And I think that the word messenger here, because it refers to angels most of the time when it's used, if it was something else, it would, he would say something else. Did you catch my, my, my thinking on that? So because all throughout the Bible, when the word messenger is used, it's most often referring to angels. Then here, if he meant pastors, he could have said overseers, bishops. He could have used a term that meant pastors. And so since he didn't do that, my thinking is that this is angels. Could I be wrong? Probably not. <laughs> which means there's a possibility, right? And the seven lampstands, which you see, they are the seven churches. We are the light of the world. And so we're like a lampstand. And Jesus was seen earlier in this chapter walking in the presence of the lampstands. So Christ walks among us. And when we gather together in church, we're here with him. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and I also say to you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And also in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do they light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Three quick things in closing. Number one, remember the perseverance of the saints. Don't grow weary in doing good. You're going to need to persevere like a farmer. Seeds are planted. Let's wait. Let's do good. This is a marathon. This is a race we've got to run to the end. And it may seem longer than, than what it's been promised. But don't forget the perseverance of the saints. Number two, remember to take time to be in the spirit. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Whatever John meant when he said, I was in the spirit in the Lord's day, he meant he was in the, he, that, that he was in the Holy Spirit. However, that was manifested in whatever way the Bible tells us to walk in the spirit and we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's my favorite fight against sin. Because it's, it's positive. If I'm walking in the spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I don't have to go and fight the lust of the flesh. I need to walk in the spirit. Finally, remember, Jesus is our great God and Savior. When John saw God, he fell down before him. But because he was a Savior, he said, don't be afraid. Don't lose the greatness of God because of your familiarity with God. Don't lose how awesome he is and how great he is and how grand he is, but don't forget that he's our savior as well.
And there's no reason for us as children to be afraid of him. That doesn't mean we don't have any fear of the Lord because he's our dad and disciplines us. Like a five-year-old fears the father when the mother says, wait till your father gets home. He is our father. But remember, he is great and he is our savior. And what a wonderful thing that is. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you that we're able to take a look at this passage and really clearly see what's here. Thank you that we've been able to be in it for a couple of weeks now. And we pray now that we would have an understanding as to what's going to happen here in the book of Revelation as we continue to get a vision of Jesus, of an unveiling of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would indeed serve you, love you, follow you, persevere, even when times are hard, even when it's difficult. May we persevere. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.